yeah, we humans like challenges. We uh, most of our history or prehistory, we had the challenge was just to stay alive. And today, it's easy to stay alive. If you need food, you go to the store. If it's too cold, you turn up the heat. Too hot, you turn down, turn up the AC. But we need that challenge. We 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 thrive with challenges. So this kind of a challenge we've created for ourselves to go further and do more than we've done before. That, my friend, was the notorious Lazarus Lake, and this is the Inspirational Runners podcast. Hey everyone, hope all is well. My name is Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. We have an awesome episode for you this week, the world's most notorious race director, Lazarus Lake, architect of the Big Dogs Backyard Ultra and the infamous Sparkly Marathon, which has been named as the most gruesome race on the planet. Not many people know it, but Laz was a runner himself who has run a 119 half marathon. He's run 74 miles in a 12-hour event. And if that isn't impressive enough, last year he walked 5,100 kilometers across America, covering over a marathon a day for 126 days. Super excited to get this podcast out, but before we start, I'd just like to give a huge shout out to our sponsors of this episode, Atlas Running. Their next big event is, of course, Last One Standing, which is being held in Castle Ward, County Down, Northern Ireland on the 15th of February. This race is going to be bigger and badder than ever before, so check out their website. You can find them on Facebook, Atlas Running. I'm going to be there. It's going to be awesome. It's a great opportunity to hit the magical 100 miles in 24 hours. There's always that small piece of hope that you'll be the last one standing. I don't want to hold you up any longer. You've waited long enough. It's with great pleasure I give you Lazarus Lake. Hello. Well, we did it. Wow, that's unbelievable. All the way from Ireland to Tennessee. <laughs> oh, well, we've, we've been spending time on some of the technical difficulties of getting people through the ultra sign-up process. Wow. For big. <laughs> so did it open this weekend? It's actually been open for... A while, just as far as collecting collecting entries is concerned, I guess since the start of the first of the month. But uh, what way does that work? What way did it work? Like, can anybody go on and just enter? Anyone can go on and put in an application, but it doesn't put them into the. It puts them all into a waiting list, and then from that, we we you look for the top credentials and try to do your best to sort that out to pick the at-large entrance and then the golden ticket winners they just sign in and you immediately you, you send what's called an invitation and then that allows them to enter the rest of the way into the field so that, that's really down to their choice then whether or not they're brave enough to take their entry <laughs> oh it's a uh can you hang on to your golden ticket? Like, if you didn't um, use it for entry this year, can you hang on to it for next year? No, you, uh, you. Well, we we had um, a couple of them that had golden tickets last year, but their credentials were so high anyway that they were going to get an average entry. Yeah, so it's, I suppose it's important for that race to try and get those type of people into it to try and pull everybody else along. It, uh, yeah, it's. 
it's the more the more top entries you get, the better everybody will do. Yeah, it makes sense. And we have an unbelievable field so far. Really excited about it. I don't know how I'm going to wait until next October. You're not allowed to throw any of those names out now. I suppose they can go and look at the list anyway, can they? Yeah, they can go look and see. You can you can look on Ultra Sign Up at Big's Backyard Ultra and see the entry list. That's class. So anybody can actually put an entry into that. You have to send your CV in. But anyone anyone can put an entry in. Then they have to. You have to send an invitation out to get them. Uh, that allows them to actually sign on and and become in in the field. That's cool. Like. How many people do you have thrown entry into that race? Well, there's 38, there's 38 golden tickets. I think right now we have 25 or 26 people. In. We can take 75 total. Okay. So you got your golden tickets plus your at-large entries. And then we have what's called affiliate races, which is just all the other backyard ultras. There's got to be close to 100 of them now. Jesus. Yeah. And you take the very top results from all of those combined and also invite them. So how long has that race been going on? Because 100 affiliated races now, that is. We only started it in 2012. I don't know. Jesus. Before we even held the first, someone had already written and said, uh, you know, I'd like to put on a race with the same format. <laughs> and then. Other people kept doing it, and then we started calling them backyard ultras, and then it just it kind of evolved in really just a very short period of time. And now I have a world championship in my backyard. Yeah. <laughs> An interesting thing about the winners last year, the golden ticket runners. When you looked at them on paper, you'd think, well, they don't that your at large entries had better credentials because there's not everybody has run a backyard race. But they actually averaged eight hours uh, per runner more for the golden ticket winners than the at-large experience counts. Yeah, without a doubt, like, because it's, it's just not your average ultra, like, is it really? No, it's, a, uh, it's very interesting. It's how long you're willing to keep walking to the starting line and doing it again. <laughs> and you can't ever have a bad hour, so that really... Even for, even for really fast people, that's, that becomes a threat. A bad hour will take you out. Yeah, that's the risk. I think it's pretty unique when you said there, you know, <laughs> you have the world championships in your back, backyard. From 2012 to that. Yeah. In 2012, and I can't remember the exact number now, but it was everybody who expressed an interest could run. In your back garden so big inv a big invitation now is going out to the world of all the golden tickets um so why don't you come and, and do an ultra in my backyard it's a really nice yard there's there's like 130 <laughs> of forest back there so so what what does the what does the course consist of them because you sort of change it up don't you between day and night yeah we have, i built a trail around the property that, that uh we worked out the pieces of it to or i built trails and then we worked out a loop that's, that's just a little over four miles. We use a short section of road at the beginning so everyone can spread out before they hit the single track. And then 
the first year we ran that, we ran the trail the whole time, but we found out at night the trail is, it's not really hard, hard, but it's more challenging to find your way. And so people were getting knocked out by not being able to get around the loop in time. And we didn't want that to be the deciding factor. We wanted it to be how many times you'd step to the starting line. So we switched up and after dark, we do a 4.1667 mile loop on the roads around the, the, the road that goes near past the house. And that way they can make the time limit really easy. <laughs> it's easy until it's not. <laughs> it gets really hard to do four miles in an hour again. Yeah. And I suppose the, the change up between the road and the, the trail as well is quite heavy on the legs. It's bound to be. I think it's more mentally. Mm. Uh, they get to the road. They know that they can make 12 hours because it's a lot easier to go that distance in an hour and on the road than it is on the trail. Okay. Is it flat? Is it a flat road? It's pretty flat. About as flat as you can get around here. That's kind of like the trail on the farm. I mean, I live on a, on a small hill and we, we try to make it as easy a trail as we can, but there's limits. There's lots of rock formations and stuff. That's class. Like a little bit of winding through the rocks here and there. And, and there is some climb on it. It's a little less than, that's a little over 400 feet per, uh, per loop. So just a hair of like 125 meters or something total. Okay. So is it an out and back loop? Like is it a mindless sort of loop? I know you want to take the thinking out of it really, don't you? It's a really, a t it's a, it's a mental test. Go out uh, about a mile and a half and then do a one mile loop on the end and then run back on the same and out on. What are you trying to do then? Are you like, they all, they've obviously got a long, t long time to think when they're on that course on the road. Yeah. Well, they, they talk. I think one of the things that makes it so popular, runners like to socialize and you're all together at the between loops. And you can just run with anybody you want to during the loop. People will carry on conversations for the last for hours because it doesn't matter how fast you run the individual loops as long as it's less than an hour and you're ready to do it again. Yeah, I suppose as you say there, like because this race has gone on and on. 60 hours this year it went for. Two and a half days of running. <laughs> <laughs> that is class. Like, it's unlike uh, another ultra, whereas I do some sort of ultra running, but when I crash, crash out, my stomach goes or anything, you know, I've got time for that to come back again. I can sit down for 20, 30 minutes and recover. A bat can, can take you out. <laughs> Just like that, a flick of a switch, all of a sudden you've got problems. You have decisions to make on whether or not you go out again in that state. <laughs> and are you going to make it back? And will you even recover? And even if you're having these thoughts, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's pretty hard to avoid those thoughts once in a while a moment of weakness can be the end of your race and then you realize oh i should have gone but you have to be at the starting line every hour so if you just once you waver and don't step in there then you're out <laughs> simple as that as simple as that do you think it's dangerous going into this race with a sort of target in your mind or are you better off just going because I see Maggie going and just saying her, she just went with don't quit. That was it. Yeah, that's 
uh, the winning the winning formula, the winning strategy is always the same. You have to say, "I'm going to keep stepping to the starting line until I'm the only one." And that's uh, if you have a target. When you get there, you're going to stop. I mean, we, yeah, that's really true of any ultra. If you say, "I," you know, my <laughs> this goal or that goal or the other goal. When you, I, I'm going to get to this point, and then I'm going to make up my mind. Well, I can save you the trouble. I tell you what you're going to, what your decision will be. <laughs> you say that's enough. Because that is that is a point that you always come to in an ultra. But the difference in a race is that because I, I did an ultra a couple of weeks ago, it was 75 miles. Um, with five miles left to go, I thought to myself, oh, if there was a way out of this race, I would take it right now. Um, but it wasn't a choice. It wasn't a choice because it was, it was at night time going across these fields and I had to finish the last five miles. So I was hitting that low point. And that is the real challenge of this, this event, isn't it? Because when you're at that point, I had to go keep on going because I thought if I didn't, I was going to die <laughs> on course. There was nobody coming to help me. Um, but there you can, you can pull out. Yeah, I've, I've had that thought. You think I have, I could just sit here until I died, and then you realize that would take so long. <laughs> it's better to just go on. So one thing I've noticed now, I we have a, a local, as you said, there's about 100 races now all around the world, even Dubai and all sorts of places. Um, we have a great one here, a couple of great ones actually, in Northern Ireland, um, in Castle Ward, last one standing. One thing I noticed, I went down and was there for the weekend helping a couple of friends. I don't know how I was helping them. <laughs> the best way you can help them is stay out their road because they've only got like five or six minutes to get themselves together. What I noticed was, you know, if people go in with a target, there's quite a lot of people drop out at specific milestones like 50 miles or, you know, half the field dropped at 50 miles because they were trying to hang on to that. Or then you hit 100 miles, you know, people tick the box and then they drop out. Um, so I think that, that could be a big, that's instrumental going into with a target in your mind and just thinking no. Most of, most all of the races, you have a huge dropout at, at each of those at 50 miles. Overseas, 100K is a big one. And then the 100-mile mark takes a whole bunch. We've kind of gotten, the field here has is, is become so so strong that those landmarks just go right by but we used we used to see yeah just an enormous dropout at miles in particular because you did 24 a sub 24 hour hundred which is nice landmark and it's your mind is trying to trick you into stopping it says 100 miles in 24 hours that's really good you've done enough it's one of those milestones yeah it's and yeah, I'd be lying, and this this is what I'm trying to pull out of this as well, because um, I meant in my first my first last one standing in February, and what does attract me is the hundred miles under the twenty four hours. That's a tick the box for an ultra runner to get that, and it seems to be the best way to do it. You know, I'm always amazed by the race when there's people go and they enter for to do thirty two miles, you know, fifty k, and then they go on and do fifty miles, or they actually go on and do a hundred k push further than you'd ever expect you're going to push but the 100 mile mark is a dangerous one i think because a lot of ultra runners want to hit that under 24 hours so it's you know i could tell it's sort of the it's the wrong mindset to go into the race 
Oh, yeah. They, there's a saying in the backyards now. They say that when the people line up at 25 hours, you can look around because those are the ones who came to play. <laughs> Everybody's trying to get this point or that point or the other point. But the ones that line up at 25, there's not one of those nice check marks anywhere close. So if they line up the 25th hour, those are the people you're competing with to win. How does it feel getting those, that level of runners now that are coming, coming to the backyard? Like when you look at the likes of Maggie and Courtney, who done phenomenally the year before as well. Like it must be phenomenal to get those type of runners coming to your backyard. It's, it's really amazing. If you look on Ultra Sign Up and, and check the field that's in there this year, it's just, it's astounding what all these people have done. That must be exciting though to see that. Oh, it's it's a big thing. We bought these crowd barricades and two-foot-by-three-foot flags, which uh, is roughly, uh, what, a a meter by two-thirds of a meter. Here from the barricades from all the different countries that are here. And we had, I think, 21 different countries that enrolled in the race last year. And then this year, I suspect it'll be even more. That's unbelievable. <laughs> it's well, if it's going to be world championship, you need the best people from all over the world. Yeah. So, what about their entourage that comes along with that? Uh, well, it's our yard, so and because of space considerations, everybody just gets one crew member. But that way, it actually works out good because that way, people who can't bring a crew, say, if you came from Hong Kong and you can't bring someone with you. You can pair up with someone else who is more local and has a crew, and then they can bring two people, and their crew assists you as well. And once it gets to a small number, you have a great crew because all these people are paid around <laughs> that, and they, they all know what's going on so that they can take you in those few minutes between loops and poke food down your throat like a baby bird and, and shove you in a chair for your three minutes of sleep and then put you after the starting line do it again <laughs> oh geez let a record going over and over again like it must be unique actually for the last handful of runners because if everybody's traveling over from 21 countries you know they're not just gonna pull out and then leave well it gets it gets really intense because that by because of the format it's sudden death overtime every hour when when the race ends it's always so sudden and no one can, you can't actually show signs of weakness, you know, in a, in a regular ultra you run and people are telling, tell, will tell you, they, you know, my, my ankles got twisted at such and such point, or I've got this pain in my hip or my knee, I'm sick in my stomach. In the backyard, you can't tell anybody that you're hurt because it feeds them. You can win if they quit so they have to think that you can go forever that is brilliant that's one thing i noticed when i was um crewing for somebody at the beginning of this year so we went into the small room at the end of every loop and it was actually a guy called peter cromie and sean nickel now peter cromie is peter cromie is is in this year yeah he's in so that's cool so it was him and and a, a mate of mine as well and peter was going you know Geez, I don't think I could go out and do another loop. I am wrecked. I'm so tired. And the mind games that were going <laughs> on between the guys, like it was amazing just to watch it. 
you know, and you're only at a hundred miles, you're only at a hundred miles and Peter's sitting going like, you know, oh, I don't think I could do another loop. <laughs> so you don't want to give any true weaknesses away, but you do want to throw out a few <laughs> false ones. Well, Will Hape that got second this year, he, we sitting there in camp, you're picking the next people that you think will be gone. And we were picking him before 24 hours. It just didn't look like he could possibly go on. And everyone thought, I, you know, it's, it's the contenders are me and me and me and me and him and her and her and him. And then you kind of ignore Peter B or um, uh, Will because he looks like he's on death's door. And then more people drop out. Will's still there. It got all the way down to two. And, uh, you know, you could see Maggie thought, okay, it's just me and this guy who's near death. And after about four more hours, she's, you can see her looking at him out of the corner of her eyes like, he won't die. <laughs> What's it going to take? Because I heard a good story from the year before. Yeah, that was, yeah, that year went 68 hours. And you see, you just, you're going along thinking it'll never end. And then all of a sudden the, the last person drops and, and all you, you know, you just got one, one guy with one more lap to, to make, to finish it. And it just seemed like it came out of nowhere. Yeah. Phenomenal. Cause you don't know. And that, that's it with these strong runners, strong mentally. Uh, <laughs> don't know what they're hiding. Uh, well, so the, we, we have a good authority from ones when they, when they weren't at weren't in the race that everybody hurts by the time you get into the third day everybody hurts yeah i would imagine so it's funny that you say that because when i was um watching it there was one guy there was a group of six left in the race there was one guy hanging off the back now his name was andy pierce oh yeah he was actually there this year and and i i had him he's out like look at him he's dragging way at the back of everybody else and but he was playing a real good strategy. You know, he was he was just doing his own thing, staying out of the way of everybody. But his pacing afterwards, when you looked at it, was immaculate. So he was making sure that he wasn't drifting away or anything. And because he was off the back group, you thought he was gone. But actually, it went down to him and Peter Cromie. That was one of the really great races. They're fun to follow on the internet. It's, uh, it's crazy. You get so hour after hour and you don't even know these people except their name but you have a mental image of them and you start pulling for this one or that one for just whatever reason your mind can come up with and it's fascinating because you don't know when it's going to end yeah that's cool i have to I have to say as a race organizer as well um i was looking at the two guys adrian and sammy die who run ours over here because you're up the whole time as well, <laughs> sitting in the chair at that finish line, ready to start everybody. That's an endurance event in itself. I feel like I have an obligation to ring the bell every hour if the runners have to answer the bell every hour. And you end up as the organizer, you have like a cycle that you go through each hour. You ring the bell, you blow the whistles or whatever you use to, to give the warning, the warning times. And ring the bell and send them off, and then go through your little cycle of duties to make sure the fire. In my case, you know that the fire is, is okay. The fire is built. The, this is full of fluids, and this is full, and this is done. 
write in your write in your short report to the internet for the people that are following this crazy thing from home. And then you look at your watch and you say, okay, I can sleep four minutes. <laughs> you set the alarm and boom, just like the runners, you've got you, whatever number of minutes you've got after a while, you, you can take them because sleep is instant. And you, you can't tap out either. You, you haven't got a choice to tap out. You have to go to the end. <laughs> but you don't get a choice to tap out. I guess you do because people will be saying, you know, after a couple of days, they'll say, I could ring the bell for you a few hours if you need a nap. No, I just do that. It's not right. These guys are stuck out there. I, I want to last as long as they do because I don't have to run four miles every hour. What is it, do you think, about the ultra scene at the minute because it's like i was down at an ultra race yesterday and there was twice as many applicants as there was um last year and double from the year before that it just seems to be growing and growing in size yeah we humans like challenges we uh most of our history or prehistory we had the challenge was just to stay alive and today it's easy to stay alive if you need food you go to the store if it's too cold, you turn up the heat. Too hot, you turn down, turn up the AC. But we need that challenge. We 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 thrive with challenges. So this kind of a challenge we've created for ourselves to go further and do more than we've done before. Is that really? Because that sort of sounds like one of the main reasons, I suppose, why you created the Barclay. Yeah, it's a different kind of a challenge. You you probably won't make it. as simple as that but it is like you know i relate to what you're saying there you know we live in such a comfort zone sort of environment these days that people don't even get the opportunity to tap into their survival instinct we sort of lose it over time and that's how we struggle i think um to deal with the challenges ordinary challenges that we have in life but then you have the likes of the barclay marathon which has been extremely documented um, but with only 15 finishes since 86, as you say, you probably won't finish. Is it important to you to create a race that sort of tests the runner's own self-belief? It, it just seems to fill a need, and it's really enjoyable to see people. Uh, we have the, the Vol State race, which a high, very high percentage can finish, but it's 500K on the open road, and, and you're totally self-reliant. The joy that people have when they do succeed is just really a wonderful thing to share. At the Barclay, it's just the willingness to face a challenge like that and to see how the the successful people, they thrive on that challenge. You can almost, I I really relate it to things that I would do at work. You would get to a project where you look at it and it's so immense and, and so difficult and you think this is impossible I'll never get I'll never get it done and then you sit down and you say what but I can do this piece and you do a little piece of it and you sit back and say well I got that but the whole thing is still impossible but here's another little piece I can do now because I have additional information when you, it's it's discouraging a lot of the time because it looks like we finished, but you keep plugging away, and when you get to the end, it's just such a great feeling. Look, I I did it. Yeah. Do you think it's a certain type of people's drawn to that, or do you think it's it's sort of in everybody? 
It just depends on what exposure you get. I, I think it's in everybody, but it's a lot of it is, is how that you how that your mind has developed on things. I, what I see in the Barkley is the people who enter it and do well are really successful people. They, they succeed at everything they do. There's a high percentage of people who have doctorates, doctor's degrees, PhDs. Or that in other in other ways in their normal life they succeeded, and they just they thrive on challenge. They love the challenge. I think everyone has it in them to love challenge, but every everything in society says no. What you really need is guaranteed success. Not nobody really. They they don't have the same feeling as you were always knew you were going to succeed. You need you need to have that doubt. It needs to be something that really takes you to the to the limit, where that at the end you feel like I'm stronger than I was before I started this. Yeah. Do you think no matter what position you finish or how far you get in the Barclay, that you leave a stronger person than when you arrived? If if you go further than you thought you could go, there there are there are some people that they get to the point where it gets really hard and then they stop. They say, well, if I went on, it was going to become really terrible. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't catch on to all the indicators leading up to the race then. Yeah, those people missed the whole point. Yeah, it was, it, it's supposed to be really terrible. <laughs> what, what about the runner number one, like the human sacrifice? <laughs> you know, the- like, see if I got an entry into the Barclay and, and I opened up and I got... I come up to see you, and you handed me very slowly the number one. They say, oh, no, not me. <laughs> yeah. Because as, Is that what happens? As athletes, you always expect to succeed. You always expect to win. I mean, you can say with our basketball team that, that I coached on for a lot of years, you play opponents, and you know that this opponent has got so much more physical material than we do, and they're they're better than us but by the time you go to the game you've thought of a way that you can win and you really believe in your heart that somehow you're going to pull off this impossible win you don't but you just you have that belief and it's the same way as a runner when you go into the Barkley pretty much every every person who I guess everyone worth their salt they believe they're going to finish somehow by some miracle they're going to get it done it's just that slight element of hope, isn't it? That really touches, like, that's, that's quite deep, actually, you know, from mankind. Like, and that's what has gotten us through years and years of struggle, I suppose, is that glimmer of hope. And history tells us all these stories where that, that tiny, tiny little bead of light has ended up changing things. And sometimes the person does finish. No, nobody expected it, but somehow they they get through the one thing after another, and it gets down to the end, and there they are. So, what about poor old Gary Robbins? <laughs> oh man, his his has been. Those are the hard ones when they come so close, but nobody's closer than him. He really had everything. He had all the big challenges behind him. All he had to do was to make a left turn on a marked trail and and follow it in two more easy miles from the top of the mountain to the bottom and finish. 
and he turned the wrong way. But the time is so close in the Barkley that you can't afford to make mistakes. And once he made that mistake, he just went probably a half mile in the wrong direction and his chances of finishing were gone. Because how, how close was he to finishing? Uh, if he'd made the, if he turned left instead of right, he would have finished. It would have been, it would have been in the last uh, probably 15 minutes that he finished. So he, he only had a few minutes to play with, a half mile the wrong way, and there just was no longer time. And um, was he? Because I heard it was like six seconds over. But I know he'd gone the wrong way, like blew six seconds over the line. But he had all the pages, obviously, of the books. Um, did he get tapped out then? From where, from where he went, from where he went to, he took a shortcut through the woods to get back to the finish area. Because, and even at that, he even with the shortcut, he missed the the finish by six seconds. But that wasn't what what knocked him out was going the wrong way. The time was just thing I looked at out of habit, <laughs> and. And somehow I, I, I'd been thinking clearly if people, when people said, did he make it? I would say, well, it doesn't matter and not said the time, but it just because it had just happened and it's like, he still missed by six seconds. That was painful. Um, was he tap? Was he tapped out then? And he got tapped out the, uh, oh, oh man, the, the, bugler, <laughs> the bugler hated it so bad <laughs> because you know, it was it was a guy. I think his third attempt, and he'd gotten closer every time. Jeez, he's he's never come back since. Last year he was injured, and it remains to be seen. I would not be surprised when the North American entries come in to see his name there, and if his name is on the list, of course he's going to get selected because, as of yet, everyone who this loop, even if they didn't finish, they've eventually finished once they got it that close. And he's been on loop twice and not finished. We'd certainly like to see him get that, get that corrected and not end his life as the person who got the closest but never made it. It does all add to the story, though, doesn't it? Things like that have drama built in. And just, just like the backyard race, it's always dramatic because that it's so sudden. And it's sudden death overtime. And, and it's just really... in the intensity of an overtime game is built into it. Barkley, there's always something dramatic because that people are so close to the edge of what's possible. Yeah, because I, I did a podcast earlier on with um, Billy Reed, who's a good friend. Yeah. And himself and Nikki Spinks sort of pulled out together. Two phenomenal runners. But the conditions that you seem to get around that time of year, because I had Ian, Ian Keith the following year as well and you couldn't write that shit to be honest you know you've got <laughs> snow at the top hail thunder and lightning it's just like how, do, how does he do it does he do like some sort of voodoo dance before the race starts <laughs> no it's spring at frozen head frozen head has a microclimate the, those mountains just stick up out of the ground and uh they catch on the weather systems that are passing through Last year we had that horrible, horrible weather, and it was actually just a line of storms that passed through, and all the surrounding country, the line, the storms went through in about half an hour, and they were gone. But it was like a piece of it just tore off and stuck on top of, of the mountains at Frozen Head. 
and just rain people for a whole day. Because <laughs> it's quite cold as well, though, isn't it? The temperatures drop. There's like snow at the top as well and could be warm during the day. The leaders started a loop where it was 80 degrees. I don't know what that translates to in in uh, in centigrade, but it's pretty pretty warm, really warm. And then by the time they finished that loop, it was down to 15 degrees, which is minus 10, minus 20, minus 15. I think it's minus 15. That's really hard on your body to deal with extreme heat and extreme cold in the same loop. Along with the tiredness and fatigue and confusion and all of those things put together. Everything together and being totally left on your own to deal with it. You're just, you're just out in the woods and it's all on you. So see when you say out in the woods, it's like nobody really knows how, how I don't even think you know, um, how long the loop is. Like they say it's 20 miles. Like where did that, how was that loop ever marked out? It just seems to be, is it even a loop? Is it just a random 20 miles? No, it's, it's a loop. There's a specific course to follow. There's old trails and, and stuff all through the mountains out there. You have to have a pretty good eye for trails because it's not like the footpaths that are all clear and neat. It's just they're animal trails. Animals use them. Uh, the old mountain men use them. We use them. <laughs> is there many animals there to be worried about? Like I know you get the, is it the yellowbacks? Yellowbacks. Like yep. Or the, um, if it's really warm, there can be poisonous snakes. Uh, of course, there's wild hogs out there. There's a few bear. Um, mountain lions exist out there, but most most of those animals are really going to pretty much strictly avoid humans. But you know they're there. <laughs> well, one thing I was quite surprised about now, because I have been fought, I don't know what it is about the Barkley with people, because um, I watched a Netflix movie when it came out first, and I felt extremely drawn to the race. Not... I was saying I would enter the race, but I just was so interested. And every year I watch it. And what? Why do you think there is such a public sort of interest in it? The people who came and did the film did a really good job. But I think one of the things that made the movie capture so many people's interest: these were not running people. There's lots of great running documentaries out there, but they were done by runners for runners. And these are people who had never seen a foot race of any kind before. So their perspective was the same. They would answer questions in people's mind that run, a runner doing film about running wouldn't answer because they already know they already know that question. It's like it's part of your part of your core of, of understanding. And I really think that it was a just a fortuitous thing that the people who came and did that documentary had a completely fresh look on it. They must have went away sitting thinking we were mad. All ultra runners are mad. They must have had that perception when they left. Well, no, they thought they they saw the magic in it of people going at that very extreme and and in a society where, like I said before, we. We've come to believe success should be guaranteed because failure will damage people. But no, failure is good. You can't succeed if you don't fail. You have uh, you sort of touched on a bit of a gripe for me from the way schools, etc., are set up um, these days. And it's to that very point that you said, you know, we try and protect people from failure. 
failure is the quickest path to success. You have to learn that. In the, in the U.S., the uh, athletics is a very big part of our schools. We have teams that are associated with the schools. And I think it's a valuable part of the education because while everything else is set up to succeed, when you play a game, one team's going to win and one team's going to lose. And failure is built into it. And the kids grow as people to, to go out in the real world and face it because they've been exposed to failure. And they didn't die. They weren't ruined. Yeah. The ultimate goal of every team is to make it to the state tournament and win the state. But there's going to be 160 teams that who's, every team but one, their year ends in tears in the locker room when they finally play the last game and they're knocked out of any hope of ever of achieving their goal. And that's, it's a good thing. Is that, do you think that that's that sort of coaching that you did with your baseball team has sort of helped you then create an architect, these sort of races to try and bring that across? It, it has because that, you, you do the same thing in sports. You're preparing the kids for situations that are not controllable and not controlled, where that anything can happen. So you try to not only prepare them with physically with the mentally with the, the desire and the drive, the ability to work together, but also to deal with the uncertainty. And uncertainty is the, that's the hardest opponent an athlete has. Uncertainty. In the in the bigs backyard, the biggest challenge is you don't know when it's going to end. You, you could maybe maybe I'll win in one more hour. Maybe it's going to go for two more days. Yeah, and to your point, then um, when I enter in February, I'm I'm trying to toy with myself. Do I book Monday off work? Do I book Monday Tuesday off work? Do I have to book the week off? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, or point and not having a quitting time. They'll say, well. Eventually, you'll get to go home. <laughs> that would be the longest day of work ever. Like you have, talking about your coaching there, but you've been in sport all your life, though, haven't you? You, you run when you were younger. Yeah, I've, I've just always been involved in sports. I really uh, enjoy sports. And I've been lucky to be able to continue to participate as a race director or as a coach after that my time as an athlete was done. Do you think that's um, sort of developed you into the person? Well, it obviously has developed you into the person, but do you think that that sort of helps set you up for the world ahead? <laughs> well, there's not much world ahead at this point. I, I think I'm, I'm... But I mean, from a younger age, when you were doing sport, sort of around the track and things like that. Well, you've been connected through sport your entire life. So do you think that sort of has helped the growth and help you manage and deal with things? But yeah, in my real-world life, the, the sports experience was very valuable. It, uh, it prepares you, like I said before, for the fact that you're not always going to succeed and that you don't, uh, that it, just because it looks impossible, you don't give up. You just keep trying. Hey, did you always have that mentality when you were younger? Did that, or did it grow over time? Because you did have some like phenomenal shorter race distance times. What was your half marathon PB? Oh no, I I had a one nineteen for a half marathon. It's, it's not world class or anything. I was not a gifted athlete. 
athlete. I just competed to do the best I could do. I like to compete against people and beat whoever I can beat. And the the, the rare occasions when you want a race, I I'm glad that I was fortunate enough to have a few races I could win because there's no feeling in the world like passing that last person and there's no one else in front of you. But 119, like I know you talk it, you actually talk that down quite a bit. Like 119 is a fast half marathon. Now I know it's not world class, um, but a lot of people I don't think would know that about you about how well because 119. A lot of people would rest their cap on that. I think my PB is 131. So you were 12 minutes. You were the person that was 12 minutes ahead of me. <laughs> the people in front of you are always the fast ones that you wish you could beat, and the ones are slow. And some you're stuck at the front of the slow people, but just behind the fast ones. I'm going to remember that. When you run the 119 or when I ran the 119, I thought I would run faster. You always, you never know when you ran your last race or when you set your first or your last personal best because you're always thinking you're going to get better. It's, it's a process of continually trying to improve and get better. And then a, a couple of years go by you start getting further and further from that 119 and you think and one day you realize I'm not ever going to run faster than that. I was that was my fastest race and I didn't know it when it happened. Oh no. You you reminded me now of my marathon time. That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> I, especially as you drift towards longer sort of distances, you know. And you know you didn't because I can sort of relate to what you're saying when you're running your fastest time, you know there's more potential there. You know there's more you can be doing. And it's whether or not you can hang on to that momentum and continue that growth before something breaks down. Maybe you get an Achilles injury or this happens or that happens. And then you go a slightly different direction. And yeah, as runners, you can keep, you can keep moving it up to longer distances so that you improved my longest race. I improved my, uh, you know, I, I got a personal best at something. I think that's a, a, of the backyard people love that they can go further than they ever went before did you do any marathons uh i did but i never had a good marathon time i had a, there were very few races to run back then and it seemed like when i would gear all my training and preparation for a particular race and then there would be i think this is the time i'm going to break three hours today this is, this is the place I'm going to break three hours. And then there would be the next day you get up on race day and there's 30 mile an hour winds and, and, uh, well, 50 kilometer an hour winds and it's right at zero degrees centigrade. And you say, ah, no. Cause it's so different these days, isn't it? There's, there's almost a marathon every day over here. Yeah. And that's you prepare for more of a window of time and say, I'll get to my peak and I'll get a marathon that's in good conditions. But now back then there was just a, a few and you had to travel really far to get to them. So you put all your eggs in one basket and then conditions made it impossible. What about the, how did you fall into the ultra then? What made you move? Because it was injury. Um, I have a injury in my foot, which made me move from sort of that hard, intense marathon training into the ultra world. Because it suited me better than I could drop back a bit, relax. And the endurance was then the thing to go after. I, uh, I wanted to be a great runner, which never happened, but I would look and 
say, you know, okay, I can run a mile under five minutes, which that's really good, but it's not really good when people can run under four. And so move to the to six milers. Now they have 10 Ks or then, then you move on to the ultimately at the marathon thinking, well, what are my strengths are that I'm durable and I can maintain over a long distance. I have good endurance. I think I'm physically tough and mentally tough, but I'll run a longer race. And then you find out all the people who moved up have the same attribute. <laughs> I'm better off than you were before the race is just longer. And then ultimately I started doing it because you, you can come to that point. You think, okay, I competed at the top of my ability for more than 10 years. That's a really long career to run at the top of your ability, but I still want to do something better than I did before. So I can go longer. I can, and then it became the adventure, the long road races or the long, the long one race of one multi-day races. You know, just the, the challenge of facing those things and getting through them. You have this, this itch to do something more and you got to scratch it. Yeah, I know that. I know that itch, unfortunately. <laughs> it's good. When, if the itch goes away, then you're just waiting to die. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, that's, the races seem to be getting longer and longer. And I did say to a friend not a few days ago, I don't actually like where this is going. But then he just looked at me and said, yes, you do. You sound, sound like you're, you're bracing yourself up to, to be the first person to get 72 hours in a, in a backyard. Yeah. that's what this podcast is all about Laz. <laughs> i think the one of the great joys of the backyard is the discoveries because there are people who excel in the backyard that they're not that fast they're just incredibly tough and mentally durable and whereas in all the other races because speed factor the front of the pack runs off and leaves them and you never really see what kind of competitive fire is in that person because there's nothing they can do about it. The fast guys just run off and leave them. In the backyard, no one can leave you. Speed is not a fact. And you have these guys that hang on and on like Will. And you would have never seen what kind of a fierce competitive spirit that they have if they hadn't had a, an opportunity that that became the factor that decides the race. It's just a battle of me me mental toughness. It's as simple as that. The ability to keep walking to the line. In Big's backyard, the athletes are so good that it's rare for someone to time out on a loop. They all, it's the hardest piece of ground. We have a tent set up near the starting line on either side, big tents, and they have chairs there. And it's about three meters from their chair to the starting line. And that three meters is the hardest part of the course because that's where everyone fails. It's like I was in um, Chamonix this year for UTMB. I'd seen Courtney sort of win her race. Um, but I raced in a CCC. And it was my first time doing a, a race of that that was going to go past 12 hours. And it surprised me where all these elite-looking athletes mid thirties sort of Italians, French, etc. They were just lying in pieces <laughs> along the course <laughs> all over the place. 
So you can't really te- you can't really tell in these type of races, you know, if everybody's standing there and you don't know what they've done, there's no way you can pick out who the winner's going to be. No, you and or you pick out who who you who the really tough people are. Uh, my first uh, my first six day race was a great lesson about judging people because I went there and I was just odd. I was surrounded by all these superstars, these great athletes who had done all these great things. And in the midst of them, there's some ordinary looking people. And there was an Englishman with rose cheeks and, and, and Bermuda shorts and just a totally non-athletic looking guy. And I thought to myself, all right, these other people, these great runners may crush me, but at least I know I can beat him. He buried my ass. <laughs> he, he was <laughs> tough as nails. He just had a cherubic appearance. <laughs> yeah, I'm I've met a few people like that as well. And it's, you know, when you're on the trail and the race and they're ahead of you and you're like, oh, surely not. (laughs) Not him, please. You learn to never look at the starting line at people you don't know and say, that guy, I can just look at him and tell I can beat him. (laughs) Well, the the race we did uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was four of us that sort of blown up with about five miles to go. Now it was at night and rain in Wales. Um, and this girl came along and she saved our asses. <laughs> uh, all four of us sorry souls had to follow her to the end of the race. And she was coming to the gate first. So she was opening the gate <laughs> for each one of us. Um, we had four sorry men <laughs> apologizing every time we came to a gate. Saying sorry about this. Like so much for ladies first. Um, but, but she saved our ass. Like So you did like you've done a lot of ultra running back in the day as well. But there couldn't have been too many races about. You talked about the marathons. The ultras must have been even. Uh, yeah, there was. When I first started running ultras, there was one of the many running booms that have occurred and ultra booms. And ultras were growing really fast. And the big thing everyone was worrying about, they said, what if there gets to be so many people that we don't all know each other? And this is in the whole U.S. If, if there was someone you hadn't met in a race, you knew someone who knew them. Because there were so few races and so few runners. Well, naturally, you don't even know everybody in the race you're in. But it hasn't ruined the sport. I really think that the trend with the long time limits and the time runs and stuff, as when I started running, the only people who ran were fast. I was way at the back of the pack because you had to, you had to be good to participate in an ultra because the time limits were really strict and severe. And you didn't see older guys hardly at all, unless it was one of those, you know, human human oddities that just is so good even after all the years. And now it's a much more inclusive and lots of, just about everybody could find a place to run an ultra and finish it. Because that is a pretty generous um, cutoff times that we have these days, which opens it up to everybody, which is a good thing. When, when Don Ritchie ran his... Uh, Hundred his six six fifteen hundred k. The cutoff time for the race he was in was eight hours. <laughs> if you had kilometer a day and the cutoff was eight hours, ninety percent of the runners would be they'd be immediately timed out at the first checkpoint. I don't actually know how you fit all this in, like. But last year, um, 
I'd sort of read about you going across your transcontinental sort of journey of walking across the state. Yeah, that was the hardest thing I ever did. It's a wonderful sport where you could take on your biggest challenge years after you're washed up. That's class. Because it's like, I don't know how how many miles you did, but it's roughly 3,000 miles across the state, isn't it? Yeah, the route I took was a little over 3,300, so it was was over 5,000 kilometers. I made a point to 5,000 kilometer time because now I tell everybody you're not really a runner until you have a 5,000. You're kind of a provisional runner until then. (laughs) So what made you take, what made you take that on? I suppose what's more importantly, why, why now and not 20 years ago? Uh, Family and job and time. I really wish that I had had done a transcontinental run when I was younger because I could have done it so much faster. Not as fast as these guys that set the records, but I could have, you know, probably done it in a couple of, in less than half the time it took me now. And it certainly wouldn't have been the kind of physical beating it was because I just had to go, I had to go as hard as I could. I was, as it went along, I had an absolute time limit to get to the finish and I was having to cut out, okay, I can no longer afford to sit down and eat. I can no longer afford to do this. I can no longer afford to do that. It got down to where you just, you, you took a shower, went to bed, got up and got on the course and ran all day until you only had time to eat, take a shower and go to bed again. And it was, it was really hard. It took a long time. It took about a year to really more or less recover from it. Yeah. Did you find, um, I don't want to say you got a bit of your own, you got a bit of your own medicine, but did you get a bit of your own medicine? <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it was just such an experience. There was so much I saw and so much that I went through and uh, 13 mountain ranges I crossed. Who knew the U.S. had so many damn mountains? <laughs> Can you, is there anybody sort of that you met? Because you must have met so many different people and seen so many different things. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind? <laughs> uh, yes, it was people, it was kind of like people's question they'd ask. They'd say, well, what's been your best day so far? Well, my best day was always today because this is the day change. Yesterday was done. Tomorrow, you have no guarantee you'll get here. But today, you can make today the best day you ever ran. It's kind of a. It's kind of like your life. Today should always be your best day because it's the only day you can do anything about. And did you find that? Like, did you find it was a really good time out just for your head and to become back grounded with everything that goes on in life? It. Uh, yeah, the the experience was so large, it, it's impossible to melt it down to one thing. It was just a, uh, the, from from all that I, you learn something new every day. You see places you never knew existed. You realize that, that the world is made up of these small areas that are unique for their geology, their geography, the the, the culture of the place. And you just, you pass through them and you're, you're filling your mind with so many things, the way that the land lays, the way that the people, the, the lifestyle or the, the structure, the history, uh, is, there was never a boring minute. 
you just experience you're experiencing your environment i suppose it's just yes an overwhelming uh inundation and in new in new things and new people and new places the people are so good i think every transcon person i've talked to all they all say the same thing is that the people are so good People are really enthusiastic about you doing it, even if they have no desire to do it there themselves. And everybody is, is, there's always somebody willing to lend a helping hand. I've, uh, by sheer luck, I've gotten to travel around Europe here in the recent years. And Sometimes you're just out there by yourself. You speak only English. You're a dumb old hillbilly that lives in the woods, and you're in a train station in France. <laughs> and you know where you want to go, but you have no idea how to help get someone will help you out so that you can purchase a ticket and get to the right train. And so that, that was a huge bucket list tick. Is there anything else there in your back pocket that you would like to do? Um. Well, I've only crossed, I crossed the northern part of the U.S. from east to west. I'd like to go from north to south, and then I'd like to do the southern part from east to west, and then go from north to south on the west coast, <laughs> or south to north, so I make a circle. How, how far is it from north to south? Uh, the route I laid out from Copper Harbor, Michigan to Miami, Florida is, is just 2,000 miles. After, after beating myself up so bad on the 3,300-mile route, I decided nothing more excessive for me. I'm going to stick with moderation. So you took the longest route first, though. That was a good thing to do, was take the biggest challenge first. It was, it was a good idea. It was a section that was basically U.S. 20 across the country, and it I chose it because it was the most places that I'd never been. And I wanted, and then ironically, the one stretch through Idaho where I had driven the whole thing only a few years earlier. And I thought, oh, that'll be, that'll be 300 boring miles because I've already done it. Well, hell, I did it in a car. There was so much I didn't see in a car that I never would have dreamed. Is there any, see if I was going to go and do it. Is there any, what was your biggest mistake that I should avoid? <laughs> to do a transcon? Uh, Go the shorter route? <laughs> pick a shorter route. Yeah, that would be the smart thing. I, un I underestimated how much of a physical beating it would be. I, in my, if I do subsequent ones, I'm going to allow more time. But I can't say that that was a mistake because I wanted to do it one time to just do the absolute best I could do. I, mean, I knew that I knew it wasn't what I could do when I was young, but I wanted to just push to the limit. Next, I just want to experience. I want to go back and drive the route because I walked by so many things that I would have liked to have stopped or stopped and done to go to a rodeo out west to stop at the Ashfall Museum in Nebraska uh, go to a minor league baseball probably the hardest thing I did one day was taking pictures of baseball parks to send to my daughter my oldest daughter because she's a baseball fan in uh, Arizona and they we're all out there warming up to play a game and I realized I could just give a few dollars to this person at the at the gate and go in and sit in those wonderful chairs 
and watch this baseball game. But I had to get to Chicago that day. (laughs) (laughs) How long did it actually take? It took four months. Okay, that's heavy. I only got 27 miles a day. I'm... My body is used up. That was just all I could do. That was a marathon every day for four months. It wasn't too bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now, you... I, I've subsequently, I, I thought, this is surely the slowest that any person has ever crossed the, the country on foot. But subsequently, I got picked up by, invited to join this USA Crossers Facebook group. And I've seen other people's times and hey, I wasn't that slow. <laughs> I'm not sure how anyone ever went slower than me, but I, but they did. What, what age are you now, Laz? Am I allowed to ask? What that? age am I? 43. 43? Yes. I, I wouldn't put you over 42, to be honest. <laughs> I would have been older, but I've been held back a lot. <laughs> have, have I had to repeat a bunch of years? 18, I almost never got 18 right. Listen, a, a friend of mine did the um, Barclay Classic there. And in passing yesterday, he asked me to ask you about the, the three names of the guys that tap, tap out. He wouldn't tell me why. Is there a story behind that? The three names? The, there's, there's Dave, who uh, is, is our original bugler at the Barclay. And he started doing it, I think, when he was nine years old and in the Boy Scouts. And he would play, he was the bugler for his Boy Scout troop. And we said, hey, here's an idea. When someone drops at the Barkley, you can play taps for them, and then they'll be truly tapped out. And uh, he started doing it, and it just became a fun thing. Now he's a grown man with his own kids. And when he first came to the Barkley, he was a baby in diapers, and we put him in a playpen during the race. And then Jim, who became our alternate Dave, and he's an old Boy Scout bugler. They're not the world's greatest buglers, but they rise to the occasion. And Jim comes so that Dave can sometimes sleep during the race <laughs> because we all we're all getting older. <laughs> Laz, thanks very much. I really appreciate you um, sort of phoning in today and let me steal your time. I sort of had it in my head, you know, this guy, Gary Cantrell, who over time has morphed into this notorious icon of the ultra running world, now known as Lazarus Lake. And the word notorious sort of rings the rings a bell. I think it's fantastic what you've done there. The world is sort of engaged in it, but I think it's because, you know, it touches something inside of them as well. You've talked about that challenge and the rawness of everything and the mystery that's around that. Um, I know I could sit and talk to you all day. Well, I appreciate you calling me. I'm, uh, I'm really just a guy. I'm an old hillbilly who lives in the woods. I'm sitting on the back porch and all around me, I see all I see is forest. And I'm extremely fortunate. The, uh, it's just circumstances that have, that have put my name out there. Cause I'm really just a guy. A guy with a clever mind, I would say, and a good, and a, I don't know, is it a good sense of humor, weird sense of humor, strange, clever? It's a sense of humor anyway, no matter what way you put it. Yeah, I have a sense of humor, Um, I'll own up to that. 
but a lot of <laughs> because I've been fortunate enough that really amazing athletes have come and done amazing things, and uh, somehow because of that I didn't succeed as a runner like I'd hoped, I found that I had a lot more luck putting races together. And what seemed like, it seemed like when I was young that it was a terrible thing. I was never going to be a great athlete. But if I'd had the career I wanted, I would be, I would have been done for decades. So sometimes what you think is bad luck is good luck. You always get what you need. You just don't always get what you want. But you find a way to make, make use of what's available. The slight change in direction just ends in a totally different destination. Lars, thanks very much. I appreciate that. I would love to see you. I'd love to see me actually in your backyard sometime. That would be great. And it's really simple. You can go to that uh, Castle Word or uh, Florence Court or one of, those, one of those backyards and just golden ticket and bingo, you're right here. Whip ass. I'm going to find out where Peter Cromie is. And I don't know if you'd like to do this here, like, but maybe. Get somebody to put the tires down in his cars before the start of the race or something. Because <laughs> he's a force to be reckoned with. Laz, appreciate the call. Um, hopefully we'll talk to you All right, soon. you have a good one. There is absolutely no doubt about it. This world is a more interesting place for Laz in it. Could have spoken to him for hours, but to be honest, I was just a little starstruck. Not quite speechless, but Laz is the man. Next week we have the woman, Maggie Guterall, on the podcast, winner of this year's Last One Standing Championships in Big Dog's Backyard Ultra. It's going to be another epic episode, so make sure you tune in. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving.